I've got your diagram, yes, where you put John's John's senses. You're listening to the Locked In Shed podcast. I'm Richard Barber, and I'm continuing my discussion with John Shedden, former national coach and director of coaching for Snowsport England. What went on in here? We're now at the point in our conversations where John is the assistant national coach, and he'd set himself the goal of developing for a future role. Having secured his university place, John embarks on learning and research, and I wanted to find out more about his interest in psychology and how this led him to develop an augmented model of skill development, still valid and forming part of the governing body's coach education today. And so set about with great enthusiasm to find out what people were doing when they were learning. Hmm. So I spent my university course studying learning, if you like. Hmm particularly the psychology of human performance. I was particularly interested in how people perform physical activities with a very high level of automation, but beyond normal behavior. In other words, as far as I was concerned, athletic behavior, what I came to call skillful high performances. So presumably you were studying psychological principles. Oh, yes. And did you make further discoveries along the way? Do you know, it's, it's hard to remember now what I discovered on the way because once you start on this road, you continue to learn. And it's quite difficult to separate what I know now and what I've discovered in the intervening years from what I discovered originally. But the course itself consisted of an outline of the different approaches to psychology, the transition from, if you like, pseudo-psychology or psychoanalysis and psychotherapy and those sort of things which existed in the era of Freud and Jung and so on, into psychology becoming a science with laboratory-based experiments, with control groups, with the search for objectivity, rather than discussions of the subjective aspects of, uh, of, of thought and social interaction. And so obviously I had to study behaviorism and cognitive field theory, gestalt theory, and other aspects which started at that, at that time in, this, in the early 70s to be, to be creeping into whole areas of thought, one of which was cybernetics the introduction of information theory. In other words, we can consider human performance as being the consequence of a machine, albeit a very complex machine, processing information. Cybernetics was a a relatively new approach to controlling machines and so on in industry and elsewhere and so I I learned a lot from studying cybernetics I learned a lot from studying information theory and other coaches had already begun to apply information theory uh, and cybernetic principles and uh, Whiting I'm not sure if he was a professor but lecturer at Leeds University and created a model called acquiring ball skill he was a basketball specialist and most interested in basketball. 
and created a model which had sensory input, which had things going on inside the body, and then motor output and feedback systems, which showed the information processing going on within someone who was performing basketball activity. Mm. I looked at this and worked with it and did some experiments on skiers in Austria and came to the conclusion that his particular model, which had been around for a while with other learners, there was a model of human performance learning just called perceptual motor skill. And there was um, Piaget, a Swiss psychologist at the time, who referred to sensory motor skills in the development of young children and so on. And I put all these models together, if you like, and came to the conclusion that whatever the processes that were going on inside the brain in terms of memory and knowledge and understanding, guided by the belief systems of the performer and so on, all these things underpin performance. Whilst the performance was happening, there was clearly information going in through the senses. It was being processed by the perceptual processes, drawing on memory, previous experience, and so on, and then sending messages to the muscles to effect the motor output, as it was called, the, uh, the behavior of the, of the skier. But what was missing for me was the impact of previous experiences on the perceptions of the skier which meant that there was a very powerful influence between perceiving what was going on and doing something about it. And that was the emotional state of the skier. John, the model and the development of it all through to current times is something that we use within coach education still. And the knowledge, the memories and beliefs that you were talking about there that people bring to the to the party is is part of them is is what i call their baggage <laughs> they <laughs> yes they, absolutely. they come to the sport with baggage yes. and uh, yes. many of those things can create a, a almost a cognitive dissonance on on their performance because actually processing that information rather than paying attention to actually what it is they're doing rather than feeling what they're doing they're thinking it through and that can be yes. incredibly disruptive and, and doesn't help uh, optimize the performance as well compared with paying attention to your senses and then having your perceptions calibrated through the eyes and ears of a coach. I think that there, are, there are two stages in this process. In the skiers that I investigated when I was at university, I had beginners and I also had uh, some experienced skiers, which did include a couple of ski instructors. And I did experiments on these skiers. I blindfolded them. I gave them earplugs to wear. I anesthetized their legs. <laughs> well, I had a doctor anesthetize their Good legs. Grief. And what I tried to do is go through selectively to find which sensory inputs the different skiers needed to perform. 
And it was very clear that beginners and advanced skiers use their sensory inputs quite differently. And uh, advanced skiers needed a lot of information from their hearing and their sight and their proprioceptive feedback from their joints and muscles and skin and so on. They needed a lot of feedback to perform well, a lot of information to perform well. But beginners were overpowered by that information. They needed their information to be filtered so that they could cope with this new information which they hadn't experienced before. And that was a key point. When we develop our sensory, perceptual, motor skill apparatus, we do so as children, usually moving around on carpets or beds or whatever. And then we go out and play in the playgrounds and we move around on the roads. But at all of this time, our feet are sticky on the floor, on the surface that we move on. And the floor is full of features which we can see and judge depth by and so on and so forth. When we move on to the mountainside, when non-skiers move on to a, a, a snow slope, then the surface between their feet and the, the ground is no longer sticky. It's no longer covered in square squares and circles and straight lines and things which give them depth perception. They take a while to adjust to this tilted, slippy environment. Because, of course, normally we don't live on a tilted world. We live on a flat world. And so the adjustment from flat, sticky, fully featured normality to tilted, slippy, featureless world challenges the perceptions of beginners and novice skiers way beyond that which we normally allow for. Because the people who are doing the teaching have already made all these adjustments and just assume that the people they're teaching can see the terrain. They can see the different textures in the snow. They can see where the snow goes steep and then shallow. Whereas beginners can't, and it takes them a while to do that. Mm. And, and you can see this in young children. You see parents, and in some cases, some ski instructors, teaching young children by giving them technical instructions and telling them to do things as they ski down the hillside. And the young children simply stick their skis into a V-shape and plow down the hillside, usually with their ankles bent backwards and with the upper body bent forwards at the hips. And they ski down the hillside, totally ignoring the instructions that are being given to them. Yeah. Because what they're doing is exploring their relationship with the terrain and the environment they're in. And once they have adjusted their perceptions and their emotional state to realize what is going on around them and how they are interacting with it, they just stand up and ski off. Because the technicalities of skiing are very simple. It's the perceptions and the emotions related to the technicalities which are more difficult to develop uh, effectively and usefully. Mm. And hence why there's a lot, quite a lot of information out there these days about teaching children to ski and that a lot of that is around play. And that's one of the things yeah. I found actually quite challenging running an artificial ski slope 
ski school in that uh, creating the games to play in a relatively bland environment is quite challenging and for those that run ski schools out there i'm sure you have your ways of doing these things but i don't think you can ever make enough fun things for children just to pay attention to and be in an environment of things that they find stimulating and yes. can aim at or aim round and things like that and if we look at the different schools in psychology it's very clear that the behaviorist schools from the 1920s and 30s and through Skinner in the in the 1940s and 50s and the cognitive field theorists and the the scientists who investigate the information processing in the brain and how the neurons transmit this, that, and everything, and how thinking influences behavior. They research as discrete schools, but in real life, they overlap. And so one of the principles from behaviorism is that behavior which is successful is more often repeated than behavior which isn't successful. And so one of the ways in which children develop is by trying to solve tasks which, when they solve them, become part of their repertoire of behavior. And so rather than teach children technicalities of skiing, it's better to give them tasks to solve and then guide them while solving the tasks. Because what they're intent on doing is achieving some success in solving tasks, not in achieving success, i.e. well done, from the teacher. The well done is okay, but they'd much rather have the success of achieving something through their own behaviour. And they know what the task is and they know when there's success. And I'm known in our club as Mr. Cone. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. I... I am very happy to show people why I'm doing what I'm doing, shaping the performance by gently changing the task. So one of the phrases I heard from you many a time is the task determines the behavior or the perception of the task determines the behavior. There you go. Did that come out directly from these studies? It did, yes. Although, uh, as, a, as a short expression, as is often the case, it takes other people to see the wood for the trees. And my learning in this area began in 1970. By the early 80s, I was embedded in the role of national coach and had developed a national coaching scheme to such a degree that I was able to have an assistant so Dennis Edwards was employed as the national coach and I was the director of coaching in charge of the whole scheme, including the officials and the, uh, the structure of competitions, everything. And when Dennis came into coaching, he took many of these ideas because we spent hours and hours and hours talking, sitting together, working together with skiers on the hillside and so on. And he took many of these ideas and he himself started studying. And he, he was, in fact, with, with a gymnastics coach, one of the first two people to go through the National Coaching Foundation's postgraduate certificate in coaching, which was run by the Open University. 
So he was continuing to study while he was doing his work, the same as I was continuing to study. And it was he who coined the phrase, the task determines the behavior. Uh-huh. He, liked, he liked little headings, you see, which meant that he could give a talk about the things we're talking about under the heading, the task determines the behavior. So he got his audience at the beginning. So not only that, it, it sounds like you almost uh, invented um, the communication methods of uh, more recent uh, political parties and things. But we don't get into politics on these chats, so we're not we're not going there. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I was introduced to this by an army officer who said to me, when you give a talk, you tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you've told them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So Dennis's the task determines the behavior was what he was going to tell them. He was going to talk about tasks and how behavior evolves to solve tasks. And then at the end, he could summarize it by saying the task determines the behavior. Go away and think about it. You remind me of key things that have stayed with me on my development as a coach and thereby also influence me as a coach educator now, things that I will repeat and try and embed within people. And a lot of those things are around models. And uh, who was it who said that um, all all models are useful, but some are more useful than others? That's probably not a factual quote, but I think someone did say that. I don't know who said it, but I think it was also preceded by all models are wrong. Oh, yes. But most models, some models are useful and some are more useful than others. So a a model isn't the real world. It's not a statement of actuality. It's just a summary of our current state of knowledge in relation to useful things that we can do with that knowledge and information whilst we develop it. And because psychology is a science, and if Coaching is based on several factors, but one of which is psychology. Then it's reasonable to keep developing ideas and also changing some of them when the new information comes along. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier (laughs) about political (laughs) slogans and things. One of the things that saddens me about politicians and Many of the people who are in positions of influence in the country are not scientists. They haven't had a scientific education to such a degree that allows them to say, I learned something since yesterday and have now changed my view. Hmm. Because science is about changing your view when you have new information. It's not about sticking with an idea that you had last week. Because if you change your mind, the press or other critics are going to criticize you for, what do they call it, Um, swinging from one to the other, changing your mind, doing U-turns, all of these sort of expressions imply that once you've said something, you should then stick with that for the rest of your life. Well, you you U-turn if you want to, John. (laughs) (laughs) I prefer steering than turning. Uh, yes, oh, very good. Very good. 
you do remind me of a lot of um, instructor and coach training where people have a highly, well, a strongly in their mind developed technical model of what the skiing should look like. And they continue to work in the technical domain of the teaching, say, that they're doing. And that person must fit that model. And when you were talking about the children, that, that's a common one where I'll see the relatively inexperienced instructor trying to get that youngster to make shapes with their body that they might have seen as a picture of an adult skiing at a high level uh, and then trying to impose that on the child. But actually the child is solving the task with the physiology that they've got. Yes. So that, that's a common area for the, the rookie instructor to, to back off from. And the model that you developed of perceptual, emotional and technical elements of skill development is a model that has stuck with me all throughout my ski teaching and, and coaching career, if that's what you can call it. And uh, that that is a model that is always useful and so straightforward to look at from the point of view of, well, and, and the way I say it to people is, well, look, look at your skier. Are they solving the task? Yes, they are. Okay, right. But how might they do it better? And they often go to a technical element. But actually, if they were to explore the individual's perception of what it is they're intending to do, or if they explore the emotional state of that individual, whether they're bored, alert, stay alert. No, um, uh, if they're, <laughs> oh dear, it's politics safe. again. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, uh, is it a, a perceptual area? Is it an emotional area? So are they are they bored? Are they engaged? Are they uh, nervous and tense? And that affects their their development. Uh, that model in itself, for me, is an absolute foundation to thinking about how your teaching and coaching is going. Very, very sound. And you said a couple of things in there which sometimes take people in different directions. Now, one you said, when the, when the instructor watches the skier, they see the skier doing something. And in, instead of asking the question that you asked about are they solving the task and so on and so forth, they are comparing what they see with pictures in a book or a piece of film that they saw about what the manoeuvre should look like, which was, of course, performed by someone else on a different hillside, under different conditions, with different personal experiences and so on. So the, the, the contrasting of the two uh, is, is not really very useful. And it's far better to do as you did, to ask the question, are they solving the task? If the answer is no, is that because they don't understand what the task is? Or somewhere between their understanding of what the task is, are there blockages of information which prevent their body from executing the behavior which would solve the task? And that enables you to then explore what they can see, what they make of the terrain ahead of them, and how they perceive that terrain is currently influencing them, 
and probably will influence them when they arrive at it further down the slope and so on. But if the answer is yes, they are solving the task, then the question is, how could that be better? And if you ask the question, how could that be better? You then really ought to ask, what do you mean by better? Do you mean more closely aligned to the textbook descriptions of the technical elements or more efficient, more effective at solving the task or more efficient in terms of energy expended or the time necessary? Now, clearly from a coaching point of view and performance coaching is based on skiers solving tasks as effectively and as efficiently as possible. And they spend most of their skiing career solving tasks more efficiently. Not necessarily solving tasks, because when when the first skier go when they first go down a slalom course, they've solved the task. The task now changes to doing it more efficiently, more effectively and more efficiently. And that involves understanding of biomechanics, other aspects of human performance which are not really considered simply by looking at textbook pictures of skiers or trying to imitate movements made by other people. And so the differences start to emerge between coaching and ski instruction when you have coaches and ski instructors working to two different models. Mm. I've helped in, in my own way, I believe, he said modestly. Uh, I've helped to, to develop this difference by the PET model, the P-E-T, perception, emotion, technique model of, of what is going on when someone is performing skillfully. But it's also confused by the other use of P-E-T, which means pressure between the skis and the snow, effected by changing edging of the skis and turning or rotation of the legs. So we have a technical pet model and a skillful pet model. And my intention when I introduced both of those in my book Skillful Skiing in 1980, my intention was to use the same initials but to say to people they mean two completely different things. So if you're looking at it from an observational point of view, working with your athlete as a coach, then the pet skill model is a starting point. But if you then follow that through and start analysing the technical output, then the PET, the pet technical model, comes into its own then. And I have to say that not everybody has understood that distinction. Lots of people mix them up. I can't take credit for the PET technical model. I think it's an excellent model, but it was introduced by the American Professional Ski Instructors Association at the Interski Congress in Zao in Japan in 1979, when they sought to bridge this gap between the newly emerging influences of psychology from the universities in North America and the traditional ways of demonstrating skiing which came to America mostly from Austria 
a very large number of the initial uh, instructors in America were Austrians. And trying to bridge this gap, the Americans came up with this model which said, instead of teaching specific technical maneuvers, teach people to develop their ability to play with the pressure between the skis and the snow, to explore the pressure which pushes the skiers round the corner, which deflects their motion. And they do that by changing the interaction of the skis in the snow, with two things which occur simultaneously, the change of edge and the direction in which the ski is pointing. The change of edge we call edging or tilting for simplicity, and the pointing the skis where you want them to go or is is called rotation of the legs because that's uh, what what causes it. And that rotation of the legs can be either active or passive. It may be the ski that turns the leg or the leg that turns the ski. So that can be delved into in quite a long way. But I then took, took their pressure, edge control and leg turning or leg rotation and just call that turning. And of course, lots of people at that time were still talking about foot steering and knee steering and or mixing up what you might call very small technical elements with the overall objective of getting the skier to travel in a particular direction. And if we step outside of skiing and just say, when a vehicle is caused to change direction voluntarily, <laughs> that's normally called steering. So you steer your car, you steer your bike, you steer your skateboard, you steer a boat, you steer an airplane. And it means to do whatever is necessary to make it go where you want it to go. And because of the long traditions in ski instruction, words like steering are hard to introduce in their true useful meaning and get mixed up with words like turning, which replaces making turns and learning a snowplow turn. And so we have to start from the inside and try and change the instructor's perceptions of what's going on. And then you come across the emotional inhibitions on instructors changing what they say or changing what they do because they're being watched by the ski school boss or by other people. And you, you mentioned earlier teaching children to ski by giving them tasks. Mm. Lots of people who teach children to ski are inhibited by the fact that when they're doing that, they're being watched by someone else who may be judging to see whether they're teaching them the right things or not. Mm. Instead of watching the interaction to see if the child or the pupil is developing in an appropriate and useful manner. So even the observation of ski instructors and coaches at work should be done over a longish period of time, not just in a short snapshot. Absolutely. And you remind me, John, of one of my favorite jokes. I only have 17 jokes in my entire repertoire. But my, my joke is, how many ski instructors does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> I don't know. How many ski instructors does it take to change a light bulb? Eight. Eight? Yes. <laughs> One to change the light bulb and the other seven to criticise his turns. 
Oh, very good. <laughs> yes, I like that. Very good. <laughs> I know, I know. That was a dreadful joke to finish on. But we've got to close the conversation somehow. And actually, we've had a chat for about two hours today. It might not have escaped your attention that it doesn't take too many questions to get John talking. And that's to our benefit, because actually there's a lot of history about the research that he did and the writing that he's done. Many of the concepts have endured and been hugely influential on the British ski teaching and coaching scene. We hope you're enjoying them. They've been a lot of fun to do and we'll keep them coming and try and get a message to us about other topic areas that you would like covered. But in the meantime, this has been a Locked In Shed production. Stay safe, look after yourself and bye bye for now.